the reading today is from Revelation 21 verse 1 to 22 verse 5. If you don't have your Bibles, it's in the bulletin. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life, without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came out of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most, a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and, the gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the walls of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height were equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The, walls were built, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelve amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring it into the glory and the honour of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Then the angel showed me the river, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, 
through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kind of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were, the healing of the, were for the healing of the nation. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this glorious vision of where history is headed. And we pray now that you would give us eyes of faith to understand it and trust in your promises of it, and so be shaped by our longing for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I mentioned in my prayer that we do have um, a picture here of where history is headed. This Sunday series in the evenings, working through Revelation, we've made it to the end, pretty much, um, today and and one more. Uh, And this is the end of human history, the end of the world. If you were here last week, you might have thought that was the end of the world. I mean, quite a lot of big kind of end time things, or if you heard, heard, uh, listened in. Um, last week we had, in chapter um, 20, we had the final battle, kind of Armageddon. We had final judgment, the books being opened and all of humanity judged. We had the final defeat of God's enemies, Satan being cast into the lake of fire. I mean, it all sounded pretty kind of end of the world-like. But actually, that is not the final scene of the Bible. Strikingly, the last thing we see in the Bible is not the throne of judgment. That's striking because one of the caricatures of the God of the Bible is that he's just out to get people. He just wants to smite people and judge them and destroy. But no, actually, his his ultimate purpose in the universe, his plan is to bless a people to bring a people into relationship with him and bless them. And so judgment is not the final picture we see. It is a true picture. There will be judgment of his enemies. There will be the removal of evil and all that's opposed to him and the right, just judgment of that. But actually, this is where God is heading and where he's taking us. This day where heaven and earth are reunited when God and his people live forever together. And it's described as a wedding day. Did you notice that in the reading? Uh, This is the wonderful marriage of God's people, the church, the bride, with his son, the lamb, Jesus. This is the the picture of, of marriage and moving in of the living God with his people. You can see that if you look at verse 2. Chapter 21, then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the first of our kind of wedding photos, a wedding vision. And then verse 9, you get a second one. Verse 9, and the angel says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And that will be our second wedding photo, our second vision of this marriage day that awaits us. Back in chapter 19, uh, there was this cry of joy that rang out. It said this, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let's rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. They said this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And now we see it up close. We, We see what it's like. 
what's this marriage day actually going to be like? Now, we're going to work our way through the details in a moment, and we're going to think, why marriage? Why is that the final picture? We'll think about that in just a moment. But just before we dive into the kind of end of the Bible, I want to remind us where the Bible started. Because as we go through this passage, we're going to hear lots and lots of echoes back to the beginning, back to Genesis 2 and 3, where we first saw kind of God's purposes for humanity, and we saw humanity's rebellion against our maker. Because here's the thing, there was a big lie in Genesis 3, and it's a lie that we still fall for again and again today, and it is a lie which Revelation 21 and 22 should finally put an end to once and for all. The lie is this. God is a spoil sport. He's mean. He does not want people to experience the good life. God's a spoil spot. He's mean. He doesn't want people to experience the good life. He's kind of anti-life, anti-fun. He's not generous. He's always trying to reduce us to a kind of shadow of what we could be. In fact, if we just got rid of him and we're kind of left to our own devices, if I was the boss, not God, well, then I'd really thrive. I wonder if you've ever heard that lie. I wonder if you've ever been tempted to believe that lie. I mean, it's one of the things that stops people becoming Christians, We love having people kind of looking in on what we believe here. This might be one of the questions in your mind. Would becoming a Christian actually be good for me? Or is God actually just a spoil sport? He's going to kind of spoil life. I think Christians can sometimes grapple with that question, that temptation, when suffering comes, when we're struggling to keep going, to endure in the Christian life, when we're struggling to persevere for living for Jesus in a world that doesn't. Most of you know my wife, Jessie, has suffered for a number of years with with chronic fatigue illness. Uh, It's ongoing, and it's a real source of sadness and frustration for us both. Less of you know that um, soon after her fatigue had come on and being diagnosed separately, there was some surgery, and we were told off the back of that that we wouldn't be able to have children And we struggled with grieving that even more deeply. Um, It turned out it it didn't prove true. After a number of years, grace did come along. I'm aware many people face suffering that's deeper and longer than that. But let me tell you, when those two things came along together, two big blows in our life, in our circumstances, in the space of a year, it, it was tempting to believe this lie. We felt that battle to trust that God is really good. Is God good if he withholds what we think would be good gifts? If he doesn't remove something that we feel like is making life really difficult? Others here may be struggling with other things. Singleness, faithfulness in a difficult marriage, mental health battles, trust of God in a, a difficult, desperate work situation, ill health, ill health of others. It's all very well trusting God in the good times. What about when things are tough? Remember, Revelation as a book is written to churches who are finding things tough. They're feeling the pressure, the struggle of following Jesus. Different temptations they faced. Some some it was false teaching, just a temptation to believe what the culture said rather than what Jesus says in the Bible. Others, persecution. They were being publicly ridiculed for standing with Jesus. It was costly socially, financially. Others, it was just a risk of weariness. 
kind of apathy, a loss of enthusiasm for serving Jesus and serving others. For others, it was positive. All sorts of circ- uh, sorry, poverty, all sorts of circumstances. But the reality is when the battle is on in the world, and if we've seen anything over the recent chapters, it's that the battle is always on in the church age, behind the scenes. When the pressure is on to worship anything and everything but Jesus, when Satan's two beasts, whether it's kind of um, pressure uh, or, or deception, trying to trick people into worshiping other things rather than the living God. It's not easy to keep persevering. And that oldest lie in the book, I think one of the biggest weapons in Satan's arsenal is to say, the good life is not found with God. Just get away from his rule. You'll be better on your own. And so the very last big vision in the Bible, the picture we've got to look at tonight, shows that actually... When you are as close to God as you can be. When his throne is fully on earth and we are around it. Well, actually then, full, final blessing comes. The good life's not to be found away from God's rule, even though Adam and Eve and Israel and everyone since has been fooling it. No, the good life comes when God's throne is fully installed on earth, when he comes to dwell with his people when Jesus the Lamb and the church his bride are finally married and he moves in. So let's have a look at that in some detail. We've got these two, you'll see on the back of the handout there's an outline. We've got two wedding photos. Um, The first one, when God moves in with his bride from verses 1 to 5. Now we've seen all the way through Revelation uh, symbolic imagery used. It's obviously not talking about literal physical wedding, um, not least because the bride is also described as a city. Did you notice that? And of all the compliments to give a bride on her wedding day, I don't think you look like a giant city. It's kind of up there with the best of them. The point is, this is a symbol of God's people. It's picking up uh, imagery from the prophets of the Old Testament. Why pick the symbol of marriage for this final picture? Well, because an intimate relationship with God is the focus Striking that, no sooner after verses 1 and 2 have we heard there's this whole new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, and then immediately the camera focuses on this wedding. We don't get to see kind of what will Arthur's seat look like in, the, in the God's new creation or what will we be doing. No, the focus is this relationship at, at its heart. And it is an amazingly intimate picture. The Bible says that human marriage is a gift from our creator to give us a glimpse of the joy, the faithfulness, the trust, the intimacy that will come with this relationship that we're made for, the relationship with him. It's why God takes human marriage so seriously. But human marriage was never the ultimate purpose, whether we're single or married. It was a visual aid to this day when God moves in with his people. Just look at it, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Uh, Echoes of the great kind of promises of the Bible, the covenant with Abraham, that God would be his God. His family would be God's people. That great relational commitment. God manifestly present here, dwelling with his people. 
that, that alienation spiritually, that distance that's always been there since Genesis 3. Well, now heaven and earth are reunited and God moves in. There's a different kind of picture of intimacy in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That could still be talking about marriage, but I just wonder if it's actually shifted to the picture of a parent with their child. I say that because look down at verse 7. Um, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God. He will be my son. Some of us will know the experience of holding a child in our arms, consoling them, comforting them from the pain they're feeling and just gently wiping a tear from their cheek. I actually did it this morning. Um, during Little Stars, Josh headbutted a, a metal digger toy accidentally and was in tears, distraught. And there I was, wiping the tears. It's an extraordinary picture that the creator of the universe, the one who can effortlessly create a new heavens and new earth with a word, the one who's just put down his enemies in chapter 20 with fire from heaven, effortlessly ending the rebellion, that same holy, transcendent God taking us in his arms, wiping tears from our cheeks. Because he knows the pain we've been through. Sometimes no one else does. He does. The night's crying into the pillow or crying on the bathroom floor or just the numbness, sometimes the pain of suffering in this world, he will wipe those tears away. And once he has, once he's comforted us from the horrors of this world, there won't be a need to wipe tears away again unless they're tears of joy. Just look at that. I think it's the second noticeable feature of this first wedding photo. It's what's not there that's so striking. Nothing can ever spoil this glorious marriage of God and his people. Everything that ruins and spoils this world and spoils relationships in this world is removed. Incidentally, that's what verse 1 is getting at. If you're wondering why it says the sea will be no more, that's not about kind of will there be surfing or sandcastles. In the Bible, the sea is a kind of symbol of evil and chaos. It's all that's out of control, um, unstable forces, scary forces. But it's gone. Anything that could spoil it is no more. So verse 4 spells it out. What does that mean? Well, it means death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's just an extraordinary set of promises, isn't it? In some ways with this sermon, I just want to read out the passage and just say, just think about that. <laughs> just, just stop and think about that. No more sirens, no more funerals, no more locks, no more lurching stomachs as bad news hits us or the phone goes in the middle of the night. Just no more tragedy. No more sickness, no more suffering, no more loss. How we long for that day. The day when everything that's broken and dying and evil about this current world is ended, is fixed, is put right. I was speaking to a Christian last week who'd been reading about the fate of um, some migrant children. They'd been separated from their parents and partly due to COVID chaos, they were unable to find them again and, and some of them were being held in, in, in brutal conditions. 
And this person was weeping, just at the horror of it, at the pain of it, the thought of these, these poor young people crying out for help with no one to comfort them. And it was just one news item on one week of the year. When you stop and think about the sheer weight of human sorrow caused originally by human evil, it is just overwhelming. But the Bible says that is not where the world ends. There will be a day when the fatherless have a father. A day when the pain of broken families or broken relationships, the pain of grief at lost loved ones, is finally and fully finished and comforted as God himself wipes away the tears. It's actually what's not there, which is why this is such a wonderful picture. That's our first point. That's wedding photo one. When God moves in with his bride, there'll be loving, intimate relationship with him and there'll be nothing to ever spoil it. So let's not believe that lie that says the good life is found away from God and his rule. Actually, think back to Genesis 3, it was rejection of God's rule that opened the door of this world to the horrors of sin and evil and death. But on this day, when God moves in, when heaven comes to earth, when God's dwelling is finally fully with his people, it will always only be good. At which point, some may be wondering, okay, it sounds wonderful, is, is it actually true of this world? <laughs> Are we talking about this earth, our space-time universe? Well, verse 5 in his kindness, God immediately reassures us there is reason to trust him on this. Verse 5, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So the living creator God says, He guarantees this is real, not a pipe dream. And it's good to realize by this point in the Bible, There is actually plenty of evidence historically to take him at his word. We need to remember that because, I mean, it's quite unusual looking at wedding photos before the wedding's happened. And when they're this wonderful, when they're this kind of of out-of-this-world extraordinary, well, we need some um, persuasion, perhaps, that this is really going to happen like God says. But just think, by this point of the Bible, what's already happened, which of God's promises, which sounded extraordinary, kind of out of this world extraordinary, have actually been pulled off? If you've been in Romans, you might remember Abraham in Romans 4. He was promised, and when he was as good as dead and his wife was barren, he was promised that God would bless him with descendants like sand on the seashore and a family from all nations. It did not seem possible the day it was promised, but here we are. And so are millions across the planet, the family of Abraham by faith. What about Jesus? It didn't seem possible, those prophecies that that said a divine human baby would come, a son of God from heaven, who'd be also a son of David from Bethlehem. It seemed impossible to pull that off, but it happened. What about his death? It it didn't seem possible that that the king of Israel would, would die a substitutionary death. And once he died a substitutionary death, then a miraculous resurrection didn't seem possible. And then it happens. 
There's plenty of evidence in real space-time history that the one who is the beginning and the end, the A to Z, the, the one who sits behind the whole of creation and its story, he delivers on his promises. This is trustworthy and true, he says. Which just leaves the question, of course, from verses 7 and 8, who's going to be there? Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he'll be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Suddenly we're back in the end of chapter 20, a reminder of this great division. There is a happy ending, but it is not for everyone. It's for those who are trusting Jesus, who are safe in the Lamb's book of life. They're described here as the one who conquers, the one who overcomes. That should send our minds back, actually, to, to the early chapters when Jesus was speaking to those seven churches in chapters 3 and 4. He kept saying to them, you need to stick with me. You need to overcome the battles you're facing, whether it's false teaching or persecution or just apathy. Stick with me. And every time he says, stick with me, and this is what it looks like, he also gives them a promise. Ephesus were told they could eat from the tree of life in paradise. Paradise. Smyrna were told they wouldn't be hurt by the second death. Sardis won't be blotted out from the book of life. Philadelphia would be a pillar in the temple of God inscribed with God's names. They were all pictures from these chapters. This is where Jesus goes to motivate his church to keep going today. And through all those pictures, the drumbeat was, stick with me. I know it's costly sometimes. Stick with me. I know you can feel weak as a Christian. Stick with me. That's why as we get to Romans 5 in our uh, small group studies, the idea of enduring and keeping going with hope, even through suffering, is such a big deal to keep our hope in this final day. So that's the response to this first wedding photo. It is a free gift to those who persevere in following Jesus. Let me say exactly the same thing I said last week. Off the back of the warning of Judgment Day, I said last week, nothing that this world offers or threatens is worth wandering away from Jesus for. No pressure should push us away from Jesus. But the same is true positively here when you see where he's taking us. Nothing should steer us off course. Nothing is worth it compared to sticking with him. And as if we're still not convinced that it's really, really, really worth it, we get a second picture, an extended look at the bride, um, another kind of wedding photo. Um, this is uh, chapter 21, verse 9, through to 22, verse 5. I've called this the perfect home with God's rule at the center Again, we saw that verse 9 of chapter 21. It's introduced as a picture of the bride, but very quickly it becomes a picture of this city, this beautiful city, God's people, kind of in a home with God, this kind of perfect garden city home. 
We'll get to some of the different aspects in just a moment. But, but first, just running all the way through it is the point that God is right at the center. In fact, God's rule is right at the center. Just um, flick through with me. Um, look across to uh, verse 22 of chapter 21. Um, verse 22. Why does the city not experience darkness or fear? Uh, Verse 23, uh, the glory of God gives it light. Its lamp is the Lamb. Why is there no temple, verse 22? For its temple is the Lord Almighty and the Lamb. Look on 22, verse 1, chapter 22, verse 1. Uh, Where is this river of water of life coming from? Well, it's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Look on 22, verse 3. Uh, There's no longer anything accursed. Why? Because the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Um, In verse 5, why is there no more night? Well, because the Lord God will be their light. Just again and again and again, we're told that with God at the center, blessings flow out. It's the final nail in that lie. When God reestablishes his rule, his throne, when Jesus, his chosen king, is ruling on earth right in the center of the world, that's when the good life comes. We need to hear that because it doesn't feel like that at all at the moment. In the worship war, it feels like sticking with Jesus just leads to battles. It does. That's what he said. But one day, it will lead to this glorious, glorious picture. Let's work through some of the imagery in this. Um, We know by now in Revelation that these are symbolic pictures. It's not a kind of photorealistic um, image. And actually, one more thing to say, because this is the end of the Bible, it is pulling together lots and lots of different images from across Scripture. Um, It's like a kind of mashup or a mixtape of lots of different themes and and tunes that that the prophets and and Old Testament have, have said. So there's some, there is some garden imagery, which reminds us of Genesis and the Garden of Eden. There's the city imagery, the kind of glorious Zion imagery, which reminds us of Isaiah. There's temple imagery, which will remind us of Ezekiel. There's worship imagery, which will remind us of Exodus and Leviticus. Basically, the more you know the Old Testament and your Bible, the more exciting this passage becomes, as all the threads of God's promises find their fulfillment here. But let's work through a few of them. We won't have time to cover everything, but um, just a few. Um, So first off, let's look at the holy city, verses 10 and 11. This bride of chapter 21, verse 10, is a holy city coming out out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It's just a beautiful sight. And the symbolism is clearly pointing to God's people. I say God's people because verses 12, and 12 to 14 have everything coming in twelves, symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel, God's old covenant people, and the church, God's new covenant people. You can see that symbolized in verse 14. The, the wall of the city had 12 foundations. On them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So this is a picture of all of God's people. The whole of God's believing people are there. Whether you lived before Jesus and put your trust in the lamb to come, or whether you lived after Jesus like we do and put your trust on the lamb who's been slain, uh, all of us are there. But we're not just there. 
We're gleaming, beautiful, dazzling, like precious stones. The whole city is built with kind of rare jewels. It's spotless, there's no blemish, there's no dark alleys. And actually, when you pause to think about that for a minute, it's actually quite remarkable. I don't know how well you know what church is actually like. Um, and I know we don't kind of rub into each other, uh, kind of rub up against each other that much at the moment. Um, but most of us know our lives are messy. And our kind of corporate life is messy. And if you look at God's people through the Bible, actually, often uh, they didn't shine like a kind of glorious light, a light to the nations. Often we're a kind of sputtering, flickering shadow of what we're supposed to be. Isaiah promised that one day, as he lived in a city that was a complete mess, God's people not behaving as they should, Isaiah promised that one day God would remake that city, purify it. It would be full of the glory of God. How does it happen? Well, the foundations, did you notice, are built on the Lamb, the apostles and their message of the Lamb. See, the work of Jesus, we've seen this all through Revelation, the work of Jesus can take our stains away. His death in our place can give us pure white linen to wear, clean us up, polish us up. And so now the people of God are gleaming. I have to tell you, I can't wait for the day when that is entirely true of me, (laughs) when there isn't stains on my character, my words, my behavior, my heart. We'll be hearing about that in Romans 6 to 8 as Paul himself longs for the day when there is no more sin. But this is a picture of God's people purified, dazzling, gleaming, holy. And as if to prove the point that we really are now holy, uh, we suddenly get a picture um, from verse 15 onwards of an angel measuring the city. Again, there's Bible backgrounds here. Um, We actually last saw an angel measuring um, the temple in Revelation 11, Um, It was being trampled at the time by the nations. It was embattled, attacked. Now it's kind of secure and gleaming. But we shouldn't just think back to Revelation 11. The picture of an angel measuring something is actually from Ezekiel when God promised in a context where his temple had been ruined by idolatry, he promised that one day he would produce a perfect temple, a perfect dwelling place of God and his people But notice in this city, it's not that there's one temple building in the city. Verse 22 makes that clear. I saw no temple in the city. Because the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. In fact, the entire city is a holy of holies. There's no kind of special place where you have to go to meet God. The entire city is a holy in a holies. That's why the measurements are so important. And um, when the angel measures the city, it's a cube. Verse 16, its length and width and height are equal. Um, the other cube we've heard about in the Bible was the holy of holies, the most holy place in the tabernacle, the place where only the high priest would go once a year. But now the entire city is holy of holies, in God's presence, with God. So what have we got so far? We've got all of God's people, all in the Holy of Holies. And then verses 22 to 27, total safety. 
This is an utterly secure city. Verse 23, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day. There'll be no night there. Even in a Scottish winter, we do now have like head torches and kind of quite bright artificial lighting. We've got quite a lot of lights in here. But in ancient world, light was a national security issue. When the sun was up, you could see threats coming. If there was a nighttime with no moon, well, it was risky. Maybe potential attack will come. That's why city gates at nightfall got closed for protection. But this city never closes the gates. And it doesn't matter whether the sun's up or the moon's up. Actually, you wouldn't be able to see them anyway. Such is the manifest glory of God, the gleaming perfection of God's um, holiness on display. It's a place of utter security and safety. But not just that. Echoing the um, Garden of Eden from chapter 22, verse 1, there is a river of life flowing through this city. So it's not just a safe place, it's a place of abundant life. The tree of life had, of course, been in the garden, but when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, he, he barred the way. Genesis says he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So when Revelation 22 says the tree of life is in this city, it's a huge deal. Previously, eternal life was banned for us. Now it's open to us. As Johnny said at the start, having, having had Jesus die in our place, we now have resurrection hope, eternal life. The angelic bouncers have been removed. And so abundant eternal life is on offer. Now there are some um, extra details about the tree of life here. It's kind of upgraded. We don't have time to go into that. Um, but it's very clear that there's a picture of international peace, the healing of the nations, and just abundant life. And where does it flow from? Well, again, the throne of God and the Lamb. The eternal good life will flow from God's throne. Verse 3 turns back, of chapter 22, turns back to what there won't be in it. No more curse. Living in a cursed world is grim. Always in our church family, some of us are feeling the effects of that. The grief of death, bereavement, the struggle to conceive and bear children, the difficulties of aging, frustrations of work, battles with sickness and suffering, the effects of sin, both from ourselves and others, and humanity as a whole. Our everyday experiences of a world under the curse, a world subjected to, to futility and delay, uh, decay, trapped by death, destined for dust. But in this creation, this new creation, no longer will there be anything accursed. And finally, best of all, last of all, we are face to face with our maker. 
striking that, of all these pictures, so many different Bible ideas being pulled together to say this is the, 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 the fulfillment of all of God's promises. The very final thing is, again, again intimacy. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. They'll reign forevermore. See, the perfect home has God's rule at the center. I'm very conscious. Um, It's hard to do justice to just how good this will be. In lots of ways, we just need to read the passage and, and prayerfully ponder on it. But in our hearts, we should have a growing sense of longing to be there. I would long to be in this world today. Next week we'll hear verse 6 say to us, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And I think, as I close, the, the thing that's most struck me coming to this chapter, which I guess many of us are familiar with this chapter, we may know it, we may know some of its promises, but the thing that struck me coming to it at the end of many chapters of Revelation is that the only route to this city, to this new creation, the only route to this joy and abundance of life and abundance of safety, the only route is through the battles of chapters 1 to 20. Jesus says, to the one who overcomes... I'll give him access to the tree of life. And so we must keep trusting Jesus, must keep sticking with Jesus through thick and thin. Let me pray now for that. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have given us a great hope You have made extraordinary promises for us to hope in. We thank you it's not an empty hope. We thank you that the resurrection of Jesus has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And we pray that you would fill our hearts with a sense of longing for this day and an assurance that it is real, that you will take us there. And we pray that would strengthen us for the battles of today and tomorrow. Please, Lord, keep us trusting in the Lamb that we might see him face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.